Hey everyone, this is Pastor Joel, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Christ. I can't wait to hear what the Lord has to say to us all today, so let's check it out together. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us. You might be at one of our physical locations. You might be at our online community, or maybe you're watching somewhere across Canada or around the world. Again, no matter where you're coming from, no matter your background, we're so glad you're joining us today. Uh, The last time I told this story was probably 12 years ago. And actually, I think this is the last time I preached through this passage. So this is what I shared to our community all those years ago. It was 8 a.m., My wife was up. It was in the morning. She's on the move. Uh, At that moment, we only had two little girls, and they had a good night's sleep, and they were alive, and they were active, and the house was awake almost. Despite the sound and the TV being on and the dancing and the cartoons, I refused to move. It was like within my dreams, I had made the choice, I am going to keep sleeping no matter how much noise there is around me. I don't do very well in the morning. Maybe you do. I don't. So I want you to picture this. It was a beautiful, dark room. I was in my cocoon. I love the weight of my blankets. I had my feet tucked under, like I've said before. I don't understand you people that are sort of like one foot out and one foot in, not tucked in. You just don't know what you're missing. My wife is one of you, and I just, anyway, I don't get you all. So I'm deep deep in sleep. I'm in my cocoon. The room is dark. I'm refusing to wake up, and suddenly in my dreams... My oldest, Hannah, cries out, Daddy, Daddy, Mom told me to give this to you. Now, I actually knew, you've probably had this experience, she was in the room with me, though I was sleeping. And I mumbled something that I'm sure in my head sounded like English, and I'm sure it wasn't English at all. So I opened my eyes sort of barely and hazily saw my daughter, Hannah, and she says, Dad, Mom told me to give this to you. So I come out of my cocoon for a moment with no intention of really waking up, and I hold out my hand towards my daughter, and to my surprise, she actually gives me something. She smiles, and she runs away. And I'm like, it feels like a toothbrush. Why in the world would my little girl give me a toothbrush? Well, I didn't really care, because I was exhausted, and I was in my cocoon. So I fell back asleep, and I was holding the toothbrush, I think, on my chest. What seems like an eternity later, which I'm sure it was only like three or five minutes later, my wife enters the room and says, John, wake up. Now, my wife had a tone. Do you know that tone? There was the tone. And at that moment, I woke up. My sleep was broken. I said defensively back to my wife, I'm sleeping. She said, why did you not look at what Hannah gave you? I said back, well, why in the world would she give me a toothbrush? Now, by the way, can you hear my tone? And then I said again, why did you ask her to give me a toothbrush? My wife looked at me and said, John, wake up. I said, what? She said, look at what's in your hand. And she said it with more force. Now, I'm more confused and dazed than intrigued, but I sat up, I got my glasses, and I looked what was in my hand the whole time. And to my shock, this was not a toothbrush. It was a pregnancy test. And she looked at me sort of like, you idiot. And then she smiled. Well, let me reassure you, at that moment, I woke up. I remember feeling joy and then panic. And then I'm never going to sleep again. What I am fighting for, I've just lost. And then I remember feeling joy. Then I thought about how much this was going to cost. And then I had joy again. Now, only later did I think, 
gross. That was a pregnancy test. I need to go wash my hands and have a shower. Now, that was 11 or 12 years ago. And here's the reason why I'm sharing this moment. My life had already changed, and my wife's life had already changed, even before we had the pregnancy test. And when we had the pregnancy test, meant things changed. And my life has continued to change in amazing ways since that moment, of course, Noah was born. Here's where we enter back into Romans. Paul's point to us, if you're a Christian, I know some of you are not, but if you're a Christian, you have already been changed. Life is now different, and now the ripple effects of that change are going to happen more and more. And this is sort of like, Romans 1 through 11 is sort of like the pregnancy test moment. No, no, no. Things are now different. And now they're different, Paul says. Let me begin to show you what a normal Christian life is going to look like now the thing has happened. So here we get to Romans 12. If you've got a Bible again, if you've got a paper version, or it's on a phone or a tablet or anything, just would you turn to Romans 12? Here's how Paul begins. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy to pleasing to, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Okay, pause. Ready? I urge you, I beg you, I command you. In view of God's mercy. Okay, here we go. Romans 1 through Romans 11 is a grand outline of God's mercy towards me and you. Remember everything we've learned. You used to be spiritually dead. You actually were disconnected from God. You weren't divorced. You weren't estranged. You were dead. You actually were a God-hater by your words and deeds. God loved us anyway. As one wrote, God's mercy to a terrible human fallen race was through the provision of his son and a radical sinful humanity was radically lost. And then I added, lost, but not forgotten. And lost, but not abandoned. See, God came for us in Jesus. He did not show ethnic or religious favoritism. He decided to take his own just wrath and took it upon himself. He took our sin. He broke the power of sin on the cross. He's justified you. He's redeemed you. He's brought you out of slavery to sin, death, and the demonic. He's adopted you. He's given you the Holy Spirit. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead and helped bring forth creation is literally inside of you. He called you. He elected you. You. He predestined you. He has already, past tense, glorified you. He's already given you part of his body to be part of so you're never alone. He's broke, broke the power of religion and taught you that actually it's by grace and it's not by sort of works that you have to please God. You've already got eternal life. You've already got purpose in life. You've got the forgiveness of sins. You've joined a new community. All of this is undeserved and yet it's all freely given. See, if you're a Christian here today, Romans says you're a child of light, you're holy in God's sight, you're free from the power of sin, you're not accused no matter what you struggle with, no, what, no matter what other people say, not what your own heart says, not what the demonics say, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are clean, you are in good standing, God lives in you, you are part of the people of God, you've been given mercy, you've been returned, you are named, you've been kept for God, Jesus is our great shepherd, and he will never, ever, ever let us go. I mean, you should be yelling amen, even though I'm not in the room with you. Like, in view of all of that, Paul says, if that's all really, really, really true, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, offer your bodies. This is what this means. Present your full self. Yield everything 
your physical body, your, your emotions, your mind, your thoughts, your soul, your job, your money, your family, your reputation, your dreams, your ambitions, your sexuality, your now, your past, past your present, your future, everything that makes up you, offer that fully, unconditionally, without reserve to God as a, notice the phrase, living sacrifice. Okay, consecrate yourself, commit yourself to the deliberate ongoing process of a lifetime of worshiping God. In other words, <laughs> begin the process of loving Jesus more than any other love in your life. Now, one person said this, and especially if you have church history, listen to this. One person reflected that the language here seems very foreign to us. If you live in the West, most of us think about our faith through the lens of religion or the lens of ideas or the lens of a moral system. But in the Old Testament, worship was literal sacrifice. Something died as worship. So what the invitation here is quite shocking. We are called to continually die to ourselves. And unlike the animals that actually had no choice, we've got choice and we can get off the altar so quickly. Like we talked about a few weeks ago with the yoke of Jesus. If you don't carry Jesus' yoke, you'll be yoked and led by something else. The same thing, if you don't actually lay on this altar and choose to be an ongoing living sacrifice, you'll continually place yourself on another altar that will not bring redemption or hope or life, but it will end up in idolatry and the bitter fruit of slavery, fear, and death. See, here's what he says. In view of God's incredible mercy, sacrifice. Now, what is sacrifice? You can say it so easily. Sacrifice, sacrifice. I can say it five times. Sacrifice. But sacrifice means cost, to give up, to lose something. See, much of our worship as Christians is denying the things that we want to do or the things we love for a greater want and a greater love. Sometimes we suffer when we say no to the things we want, we desire, what we're drawn to, or what we want to participate in. One of the greatest acts of worship is when Jesus calls us to self-denial into the idea where Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. This is suffering, but it has to be reframed through the lens of worship. We do this because we've experienced such mercy ourselves. He says, look, this spiritual act of worship is holy and pleasing to God. Worship isn't just what we do in a gathering like on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. It's not just when we sing or we give. Worship is when we actually see the kingdom of God change how we live life. Yeah, centuries ago, there was uh, a great leader. I talked to you about him before. He was one of the greatest preachers in the third century and a bishop called Chrysostom. And someone asked him this question, how in the world do I become a living sacrifice? Like, and he says, oh, let me tell you. He said, how is the body to become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil thing. It's already become a sacrifice. Let the tongue say nothing filthy. It has become an offering. Let your hand do nothing evil. It has become a whole burnt offering. But even this is not enough, for we must also have good works. A hand must give alms. The mouth must bless those who curse them. The ear must find time to listen to the reading of Scripture. So, in view of God's mercy, place yourself on the altar and choose to sacrifice your love, life for God. And then he says, oh, and by the way, keep going with this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. He says, do 
not conform. Resist. Do not be molded. Do not look like the pattern of this world. Now, the pattern of this world in Greek reads the age, the fallen time in history. But then you can read that and go, yeah, yeah, of course. But sorry, what does the pattern look like? You got to define the pattern to know how not to conform to it. Well, Paul, in a different book, in an earlier book, Galatians, tells us. And I've done this before, and forgive the repeat, but it's just needed. If you want to know what the pattern of this world looks like, read Galatians 5.19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Idolatry, witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy. Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, etc. Okay, let me walk through this. The first three words, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, are all sexual-related sins. Sexual immorality is where we get our word pornography from. It's the word porneia. I've shared this before. This word was a Jewish catch-all phrase for any sexual act that God says no to. The dictionary definition, if you look up porneia in a biblical dictionary, always includes adultery, uh, sex before marriage, same-sex activity, not attraction, intercourse with animals, incest, and the like. Any sexual act outside of marriage as formed by God in Genesis. That's why if you go to the Old Testament in Leviticus, there's a whole list of sins found there that go beyond the Genesis account. And then those very sins that God says no to are repeated again in the New Testament and forbidden by Jesus, Peter, Paul, Jude, and the author of Hebrews. Don't forget the basic rule. If it's in the Old Testament, then repeated in the New Testament, it's authoritative for every generation of God followers. So he says, number one, we, we need to be conformed to the scriptures sexually, not conformed to what I feel, what I want, where I think I need to go. And then he says, oh, t- number two, don't be involved in idolatry. Idolatry is when you worship any other God other than the true living God, or you lift up something to equal God or above God. And idolatry, as I've shared before, takes three forms. The first one is, in the Judeo-Christian worldview, when a person, a very good, sincere person, we talked about this last week, worships any other God than the Father found through Jesus by the Spirit, it's idolatry. When a Hindu gives offerings to Ganesh or Vishnu or Brahma, when a Buddhist teaches karma or reincarnation or lives like nirvana is true, or, or when a Jehovah Witness meets on a Sunday morning and worships a Jesus they say was created and was really the Michael, the angel, archangel Michael, it's idolatry. It's just idolatry. The second form of idolatry which breaks God's heart is, is actually folk religion, it's spiritual actions, it's things like tarot cards and psychic readings and new age and witchcraft and horoscope and Ouija boards and reincarnation readings and praying to the dead and praying to ancestors and palm reading and, you know, water witching and using power that isn't from God like Reiki to heal people. It's being involved in secret societies. Any place you gain power or information spiritually other than the living God is idolatry. And the third form is, it's secular. It's when sex, money, and power, which by the way, sex, money, and power are all good, actually replace God and the love for them or the actions around them replace what God says. That's idolatry. So things like, well, yeah, I know that God says that sex outside of marriage is wrong, but I love that person and we live together and it's 2023. No, then your relationship is an idol. Is, is an idol. Or, yes, I know that God asks me to give or surrender that money or do this thing, but, you know, my calendar, my agenda... My, then that has become an idol. 
So, so the pattern of this world is uh, in the sexual realm. The pattern of this world is religious. <clears throat> and then the, power, the pattern of this world is relational. Hatred. That word hatred has three meanings. Hatred between rich and poor. And by the way, that goes both ways. Rich looking down on poor people. Poor people hating the rich. A hatred between different ethnic groups. And just hatred between people. That's part of the world. Discord is the word strife. You love divisions and fights. Jealousy and envy are related to coveting. I want that thing that's not mine. Fits of rage is just being angry, marked by angry, not be anger, not being self-controlled. Selfish ambition is much of what you do, even the good things and the right things. They promote you. They build you up. They build your reputation up. It's at a motive level. Dissension is you're at the heart of disputes, you cause disunity, you create strife, rebellion marks you, don't tell me how to live, mom and dad, don't tell me how to live, government, don't tell me how to live, pastor, anyone in authority, don't tell, dissension, factions is where we get our word heresy from, promoting Christian teaching that looks real but it's false, and drunkenness is, it's never been God's will that a Christian is drunk or, or blitzed or buzzed or high or stoned or tipsy, call it whatever you want, whether you do it because life is monotonous or you want to escape or you want to feel or you want to have courage, and, and whether it's addiction or choice or biology or disease, which much of it is, God invites us, of course, through his spirit, through community, even through medical help. But he says, no, we just, that's not us anymore. An orgy just basically means like partying, uh, licentiousness. The old words are like wenching and whoring and wild parties. And we just, we see this everywhere. We see this online. 60% of the internet's porn. And not only this, we just see this in club life and in house part, like, he says, look, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy please, and don't conform to any of this anymore. Be transformed. Be transfigured. Now, the word transformed and transfigured is where we get our word metamorphosis from. It's what we see in nature. A tadpole eventually becomes a frog, or a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. What's so important about this, catch this, is it doesn't happen. It's a lifelong process through the power of the Spirit through understanding scripture, through Christian community, through accountability, through confession, uh, through encouragement. We are made more and more like Jesus. We say no more and more to the list above because we want to look and love Jesus more, look like Jesus more and love Jesus more. So he says, okay, in view of God's mercy, number one, I just want to tell you, live a radically different life. And then he says, now number two, Start walking in a power that isn't naturally yours. For the grace given to me, verse 3, I tell every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Okay, that phrase, the measure of faith God has given you, has two meanings here. First, it means this. We should be incredibly humble around each other. How could we ever think? We're ever better than another Christian because of money or clothing or spiritual gifts or experience, natural or acquired skills or maturity or race or education. If salvation is literally God called us, Jesus saved us, and the Spirit opens our eyes, like humility is the only place we get to go. So in other words, there's a level foot at the cross, number one. But this is actually talking not just about that. This, this phrase, the measure of faith, is talking about spiritual gifts. This is a spiritual gift <coughs> passage. This is where we get our word charismatic or charisma from. 
And we've taught this a thousand times. I've written a book called Convergence on this. We have a major sermon series on spiritual gifts that you need to go back and watch if you don't know about it. But here's what we learned. Each one of us has at least one spiritual gift. And that phrase, measure of faith, teaches us And if you read the whole passage, you don't get to choose what gifts you get. And more than that, God limits the power behind the gift. In other words, think about a river with riverbanks. God not only tells you what river you get, he also tells you how much water there's going to be in the river. Some people will be given a creek of anointing or influence, some a river, some an ocean. And what we begin to see here is as you live this new normal Christian life, have the courage to ask God about the divinely given limits and what gifts you don't get, so you don't lose joy and live with wrong expectations. Also, don't spend your life wanting other spiritual gifts not given to you by the Spirit. Don't spend your life also trying to do the mass majority of your ministry in an area you're not gifted in. And the reverse is also true. Don't expect other people to become something that God has not gifted them to be, because if you do, you'll always end up angry and bitter and burnt out and disappointed because your views aren't heaven's views. He says, look, just as each of us has one body, with many members, parts, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the other. We all have different gifts according to the grace given to us. So if a person's gift is prophecy, let them use it in proportion to their faith. If it's serving, let them serve. If it's teaching, let them teach. If it's encouraging, let them encourage. If it's uh, giving uh, to the needs of others, let them give generously. If it's leadership, let them govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let them do it cheerfully. So in this list, you've got prophecy and serving and teaching and encouraging and giving and leadership and mercy. Now, this is not the exhaustive list. There's 21 spiritual gifts in the New Testament. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 12 and here in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. But here's the point. Spiritual gifts are the sign of the new life that we're involved in. And we actually need to know our spiritual gifts because this is actually how we imitate Jesus. Because Jesus used spiritual gifts, and I've taught this for years. Spiritual gifts are the only guaranteed place of doing ministry from because they're heaven-given power. You don't need to be, the well you're accessing isn't you. It's the Spirit. We talk about this all the time here. A natural gift, an acquired gift, and a spiritual gift are three different things. A natural thing you're born with. You might be incredible at basketball. I would need the Holy Spirit to play basketball. You might not right? An acquired gift is something you can learn at university or college or in an internship, right? Or an apprenticeship. You don't need the Holy Spirit in the room to do math or biology or basketball necessarily, but you do need the Spirit of God to fill you and use you when it comes to spiritual gifts. Why is this so important? Because spiritual gifts transcend culture, race, gender, and church style. The power source is never based on who has historical power. They're never based on where money is. They're never based on personality. And they're the only ongoing guaranteed place to do ministry from. And as we've talked about time and time again, Jesus himself used spiritual gifts. And so if he made that the epicenter of his ministry, so so must we. Okay, so let me just unpack this. Because remember, Paul's just outlining how life is going to be different. From the amazing work of God and realizing how merciful he's been to making the decision and the choice for personal sacrifice and worship, and then beginning to wrestle down the empowerment to serve the church and the world. Now Paul says, I also want to talk to you about how you're going to live with Christians in a different way. In view of God's mercy, here's how you have to live differently. Love must be sincere. 
Let your love between Christians be genuine, without hypocrisy. And the love here is agape love, it's divine love. The idea of hypocrisy comes from the Greek theater where a person would actually have multiple masks or one mask in their hands and they would act like different people but not be their real self. He says, no, that's not allowed in the church. Then you're like, well, okay, well, then what does this love look like when it's sincere? Oh, 1 Corinthians 13. God's love is patient. And God's love is kind. And God's love does not envy. And God's love does not boast. And it's not proud. And it's not rude. And it's not self-seeking. And it's not easily angered. And it's, it keeps no record of wrongs. And love, this love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices with truth. It protects, trusts, and always hopes, and always perseveres. So he says, now you're, all, because of all this amazing stuff, he says, look, love between Christians needs to look like 1 Corinthians 13. And then he says, oh, by the way, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Love is not soft on evil. We are called as Christians to abhor, to, to run from, to not, to not embrace, but shrink back from the things that God says are evil. And we know what the list is. We just read it. And then he says, oh, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. Keep serving God. The idea here of spiritual fervor is really profound. It comes from the idea of a burning bush or a boiling pot. The Amplified Version says this, Be aglow and burning with the Spirit, keep serving God. So this is critical to understanding this whole conversation today. For us to hate evil, to us to even, even for us to acknowledge what evil is, for us to begin to love each other, let alone love ourselves, to us to, for us to begin to use spiritual gifts, and to be okay with the measure of umph we get behind them. And for us to be okay with the gifts we didn't get. And for us to keep serving God no matter the season. And to love a world that does not share our faith. And then to continue to be a radical living sacrifice and denying ourselves. We need something outside of us to empower us from the inside. And that's why he says the Holy Spirit is so important. The Holy Spirit. And that's why he says next, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Be full of hope when things are terrible, when things are great, when things are boring. Be patient. You know God is sovereign and he's going to work things out and don't stop praying. And you notice this, all three are deliberate. Choose hope. Choose patience. Keep praying. And then he says, oh, by the way, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. In other words, as one person said, our care for brothers and sisters in Christ should reach down right into our wallets and, and purses and cost us. We need to be generous people. We need to be giving at the local church level because when we give, we're supporting missionaries in Bangladesh and we're supporting pregnancy help centers and we're promoting all this stuff inside. We need to be generous through the church and to each other and also practice hospitality. Now, one person said this 2,000 years ago in a culture with no motels and no restaurants, Overall, Christians depended on each other when they traveled. And we forget this. Many Christians lost everything when they embraced Jesus, and they were disinherited. It was either hospitality or complete loss. And it still matters today. The call to share not only what we have, but our very presence with other Christians are massive. 
We are called to be involved in other Christians' lives. We are called to be present with them, be in community with each other, and not just with Christians. Christians should be known for hospitality with non-Christians. We should be throwing the biggest parties on the block. Not every day. Some of us aren't. This isn't our spiritual gift. But listen, almost every culture other than my culture on earth is hospitality-driven. If you want to reach Toronto, hospitality is your first step to sharing the gospel. So watch what Paul does. He says, okay, so things aren't the same. From the amazing work of God and mercy to the ongoing personal choice of sacrifice and worship to the empowerment to serve the church and the world through spiritual gifts and then to act differently with Christians. Then he says, oh, one last thing. You also need to act different with the world that is not Christian that's actually against you. So he basically says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I read this summary this week, and it's amazing. It's one thing not to curse your enemy. It is another thing to pray for their blessing. This is a life-changing call. Uh, Many different um, people from Arabic backgrounds have a custom. Now, it's, of course, uh, practiced differently, and there's different levels of sincerity, I'm sure. But it symbolizes what's being called here. They basically touch their head, and then their lips, and then their heart. And this is what it means. I I think of you highly. I speak of you well. My heart beats for you. I think of you highly. I speak of you well. My heart beats for you. This is what we are called to do for our enemies. I think of you highly. I speak of you well. My heart beats for you. What a way to love the world. Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. And then he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. There's a very famous ancient Swedish proverb that says, a shared joy is a double joy. A shared sorrow is a half sorrow. This is about presence. God never leaves us, so the body of Christ must not leave each other. In other words, we are to be happy and hang out and be joyful when good things happen. And we are supposed to sit there, sometimes in silence, and just sit and weep with our friends who are broken. This is true in the Christian community, but also this is true for us as we interact with those who are not part of the church. Paul sort of keeps going and outlining this. He says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Vanity is the death of Christian witness. It is saying, listen, I know that you're made in the image of God, and the one that literally predestined me, called me, and elected me, the one that loves me, uh, the one that has changed my life, I'm going to choose actually not to love you Because even though you're made in the image of the one that loves me, I just think I'm better than you. Now, most of us would go, I would never do that. But of course we do. As one wrote, Christians who only associate with people of the same intellect or academic or professional interests are not living up to a scriptural understanding. There's this incredible story that came out of the United States about this a long time ago. There was a guy named Charles Hughes. Mr. Hughes was appointed the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. When he moved to Washington, he transferred his membership to a local Baptist church. His father had been a Baptist minister. He was a lifelong um, Christian and witness to his own faith. And it was a custom in a Baptist church that all new members would come forward during the morning service and they'd be introduced to the congregation. Now, on that particular day, the first person called forward, and this was a long time ago, was a man of Chinese descent named Ah Sing. And Ah Sing, his job was he did laundry. He had moved from from San Francisco to Washington. 
uh, San Francisco to Washington, and he basically ran a laundry near the church. And he was a deeply devoted follower of Jesus. So he got up, he was called, and he moved to the far side of the pulpit. Others were called, and they took up positions on the extreme opposite side. There was 12 other members called that day, and this is blatant racism and blatant economic snobbery. So you've got this man of Chinese ethnic origin who's a laundry person here. You have all these other people on the other side. You're literally seeing the divide in the middle of God's house. Well, he's standing alone, Ah Sing is. And then the chief justice, who of course ever knew was the chief justice, is called. He stood up and immediately went and stood beside Ah Sing. Why? Because he understood that at the end of the day, Supreme Court justice or a person who runs a laundry in Christ. Oh, absolutely equal. Absolutely servants of Christ. Absolutely precious. Paul says this is what the church must always look like. And if that's not enough, he goes further and he explicitly commands us to love our enemies. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes you can't. They don't want peace, but you try. Don't take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath. It's written. It is mine, God says, to avenge. I'm going to repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on their head. Do not... Be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. By the way, if you haven't caught it, Paul's literally taking sections from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what I just read is hard. It is not natural. It is the reverse of how the world teaches us to think, and it's actually how our soul wants to act, but we can't naturally act this way. Undeserved mercy given again and again to undeserving people because we're undeserving in the first place, but God had mercy on us. Now notice here through this passage that God reminds us love is not an emotion. It is an attitude and a mindset empowered by the Spirit. And we are reminded also that love in all of its forms need to be defined by God and His Holy Word. Not culture, not the fat of the day, not history, not our views, not our family, not our stories, not our feelings. No matter what we think or feel, God is the author of love. Not us. We are called to love and serve on his terms, in his power, with our eyes fixed on, on Jesus. So, okay, it's so easy for me to walk through that. But this passage is like brutal. I mean, this is unbelievably hard. So Paul says, in view of God's mercy. So let's start there. If We talked about this last week. If you don't really, 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 really believe that you were that lost and that found, all of this falls apart. So some of you, literally out of the sermon, need to go home and say, God, help me understand how much mercy you've, you've given me. Like you literally need to ask God, be courageous and say, show me what it would, show me what it would have been like without you. Show me how serious my sin is. Show me eternal life without you. Show me the reality of hell and lostness. Show me how in trouble I was. Until you understand how merciful God has, has been, you just won't be changed to anyone else. Like literally, some of you need to go home and you need to kneel down or on a walk and say, God, show me what it's like from your vantage point to be lost. Then God's mercy is just going to come alive. Here's the second thing. This is for all of us. 
We need to ask for the Holy Spirit to literally fill us to do this. Do you actually think that you can actually love God or love yourself or others? You, do you really believe 1 Corinthians 13 can happen naturally? Do you, do you actually think you can actually not take revenge? That you can actually consider others better than yourself? That you can celebrate when someone gets a spiritual gift you don't get? That you can celebrate someone has greater authority or power in that spiritual gift? Can you, like, Romans 12 is so dumb and stupid unless the Spirit of God shows up and it's true. We need to say to the Holy Spirit, literally, Holy Spirit, you have to do this in me because I can't do this naturally. So number one, show me how lost I was and show me your mercy. Number two, Holy Spirit, fill me, transform me, flood me, show up in me because this, this is an, I just need you. Here's the third thing this week. Decide to worship. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Literally say, maybe you need to do this right now. God, my body is yours. My ambitions are yours. My, my, my sexuality is yours. My money is yours. My thoughts are yours. My dreams are, like just literally go through everything that you think makes up you and say, Lord, willing sacrifice, willing sacrifice. In view of your, in view of your mercy, willing sacrifice. Willing sacrifice. I hold nothing back. My kids, no. My ambitions, no. My, my job, no. My health, no. Like, yours, yours. Uh, there's a pastor who asked these questions, and maybe they'll help you in a connect group or as you process this. One, he asked, are we thinking rightly about ourselves according to the standard we've learned by knowing Jesus? Or are we thinking of ourselves too highly Comparing ourselves with others so we look good. If so, we need to look to Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another question. Are we thinking rightly about other believers? Is the body a reality to us? Unity, diversity, mutuality. Do you even care about the body in church anymore? Or is it just optional? Three. Do I love others, especially those in church, without hypocrisy? If the answer is even uncertain. Go back to God in prayer because the Holy Spirit is the only one who can pour love into our hearts and through our hearts. Finally, how are you doing with spiritual gifts? Are you using them? Do you know about them? If you do know about them, why are you not using them? And lastly, I would add, is my posture towards the world, those not in the church, based on defense, revenge, and retaliation, or non-retaliation? Paul says, the pregnancy thing has already happened. <laughs> the change has already taken place. It's done. And now this is the roadmap, and this is the pattern to a normal Christian life. This isn't revival. This is a normal Christian life. But it's metamorphosis. It happens over a lifetime. So as we end, let's just pray it like this. Lord, what's in front of us is impossible. But, Lord, show people this week their true lostness before, before you and how they've been found. Fill this church with the Holy Spirit, like, for real. Certain people, Lord, need to cry out and say, I'm a willing sacrifice. Work that out for them. Others of us need to talk about how we're viewing ourselves compared to others. But my real prayer, Lord, is this. Lord, help the whole church, all of Sanctus, 
to every day read through Romans 12 and just start praying, Lord, make me this. Make me this in its entirety. Lord, would you continue to do this unnatural revolution in us so we can move forward? Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for our church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that subscribe button to be notified when another episode releases. Thanks for being with us today, and have a great week.